Hello there and welcome to Auburn University Harrison School of Pharmacy's Practice Ready Curriculum podcast series. This supplementary content today is for the Integrated Learning Experience 7 Hospital Acquired and Ventilator Associated Pneumonia Unit. And I'm your content expert, Dr. Taylor Stuber. However, I am joined by the true expert, my friend and colleague, Dr. Madeline Belk. Dr. Belk is an infectious diseases pharmacist at Huntsville Hospital and completed her pharmacy school training at the University of South Carolina College of Pharmacy and went on to complete her PGY-1 pharmacy practice residency at Baptist Memorial Healthcare in Memphis, Tennessee, and then her PGY-2 infectious diseases residency at Huntsville Hospital right here in Huntsville, Alabama, where she currently practices. Madeline, welcome. Thanks, Taylor. I'm excited to be here today and talk about pneumonia. Well, I figured it was probably best to get a true expert on here to discuss HAP and VAP to one, validate what I'm saying in the classroom, and two, discuss some of the gray areas that can help in some of the critical thinking and decision-making process. I think that's great, Taylor, and I'm excited to share my knowledge. Awesome. Well, before we begin, do you care to share a little bit about yourself? Maybe what got you interested in ID? Maybe what you like to do in your free time when you aren't updating COVID protocols or treatment pathways or reading the newest trial that's come out? <laughs> well, although those things are very fun, I enjoy doing them. Um, to begin with, what got me interested in infectious diseases, it's actually a fun story because in school I hated ID. It was so hard. It was like, how will I ever remember what covers what and all these side effects and dosing? And it was just insane. I was like, there's no way I can do infectious diseases. But then when I started my pharmacy rotations, um, I went outside my comfort zone. I did an ID rotation because I knew it wasn't one of my strong areas and I wanted to learn a little bit more. Um, and during that time, I just fell in love with ID because it's hard for a lot of people. And so it was nice to reach out and be able to help them. Um, and the more you see it, the more you understand the spectrums, um, how to choose an antimicrobial, the monitoring and all of that. And so if you at first don't like ID, don't give up on it. Um, I highly encourage uh, you all to do a rotation or at least shadow a couple of days um, in infectious diseases to see what all's out there. As far as what I like to do in my free time, I have a one-year-old, so she consumes a lot of it, which I wouldn't have any other way. Um, but when I'm not walking her around the park or feeding her or doing whatever she wants to do, I love to do spin classes. And I just got back into running, so I'm hoping to get a running stroller soon, and then we can run together in the park. And so, I like to I like to exercise and all that. It's good stuff. I That's, highly encourage it. Take 30 minutes every day for yourselves. So, highly encourage infectious diseases, not giving up on it, and also exercise. That's, that's right. That's good advice, <laughs> I think. Um, yeah, I think I saw on Twitter today, you all took an early morning stroll yes. around the park. Oh, yeah. That's exciting. I know. she She's very demanding. 
Yeah. And so I'm like, you're the you're the balls kid, which is probably not the thing to say, but she's my first, so I can I can you know do what I want sure, <laughs> and exactly. learn from her. You know, I, I I've got a almost one year old as well, so you know I I understand mm-hmm. the uh, all the implications of that. But all right, well, great. Let's jump in. Um, I've discussed with the students about you know the fundamentals of HappenVap basic treatment algorithms and approaches, kind of what the guidelines say, but there's probably still some uncertainty. So Madeline, let's first discuss, you know, the scope of HappenVap, kind of what you see on a daily basis. How many cases do you typically see? What do the patients look like when you see them? You know, just try to describe what it looks like in in real life. Yeah, so our HappenVap patients are there's just a ton of them. I'd say every other patient, if not more, is going to be a pneumonia patient. Whenever you start a new vancomycin note, it's likely for a pneumonia patient. Um, and so they can appear, you know, depending on their past medical history, pretty good at baseline. Like maybe they came in for something um, unrelated to an infection and down the road, you know, their hospitalization lasts a little bit longer, so they developed a pneumonia, but overall they're they're doing well. Um, and then there's the cases that they're not doing so good. Maybe they have, you know, a past medical history significant for COPD or something that um, predisposes them to a more severe course, in which case they may need to be ventilated um, and things things like that. And so it really depends on the patient, how severe they're going to be. But pneumonia is the leading infectious cause of mortality among hospitalized patients. Um, And like I said, it really depends on the severity of illness, but the mortality can range from 15 to 50%. Some more numbers to kind of consider is what this cost is to the patient. So if they come in and they develop a hospital-acquired infection, particularly pneumonia, they're looking at about $40,000 additionally to whatever else their hospitalization's costing. And some of this is due to the fact that there's just prolonged duration of hospitalization at that point. Um, it can go on for at two weeks or more. And then prolonged mechanical ventilation as well, which can be around 10 days um, if a patient's, you know, very sick. Yeah, that's, um, I think that's a good scope you know, the, the patients that I see on an internal medicine service generally are more the hospital-acquired pneumonia. I don't see a lot of patients in the ICU, so they tend to be a little bit better looking or appearing, but, you know, describing some of the implications that you mentioned, you know, I think are really important and kind of address the scope of what an ID pharmacist could possibly see as well. But yeah, I feel like we see a, a lot of pneumonia um, just in general, so... Thanks for that background. Now, I I really want to get into the pharmacist patient care process when it comes to HappenVap. You know, the students know the basics, algorithms, the background, things like that, but maybe we can kind of walk through how to apply that and how to think about it. Obviously, we start by collecting information. They should recognize the patient has signs and symptoms of pneumonia. They should know that. Um... They would look at other subjective and objective information to aid in the assessment, the categorization of the patient, 
and determine which therapy they would ultimately need. But when we move on to assessing the patient, what types of things should they be assessing or or thinking about? So to begin with, you need to determine, is this hospital-acquired or ventilator-associated pneumonia? After that's determined, um, based on signs and symptoms and other subjective objective information you have at hand, you'll need to assess the presence of risk factors for certain pathogens, and that includes multidrug-resistant pathogens, because that's ultimately going to impact what you choose um, antibiotic-wise. Another thing is that you want to make sure the patient has blood cultures and non-invasive respiratory cultures. This is a little bit different from community-acquired pneumonia because not all patients um, will need that additional testing. But when it comes to nosocomial infections like um, hospital-acquired and ventilator-associated pneumonia, you do want to make sure that you're getting those blood cultures and non-invasive respiratory cultures. Um, We know, you know, once we have that, we kind of can think about the most common organisms we're going to see, which is Staph aureus, um, Pseudomonas, and other gram-negative rods such as Klebsiella or Serratia. I think we can assess the patient in a stepwise approach depending on if they have HAP or VAP. So when you think of um, any of these, so whether it's HAP or VAP, one of the big risk factors for multidrug resistant organisms is if the patient's received IV antibiotics within the last 90 days. That's going to be a really big determinant, and you want to make sure that you know that information about your patient. As far as other risk factors for MDRO um, VAP, you have septic shock. Um, at VAP onset or acute respiratory distress syndrome that precedes VAP. If a patient's been there for greater than five days, um, then that's a consideration, as well as acute renal replacement therapy prior to the onset of VAP. For pseudomonas um, in HAP or VAP patients, um, when you're thinking about multidrug resistance, you want to think about whether or not they have a structural lung disease at baseline. So that could include cystic fibrosis or bronchiectasis. Um, In these patients, they are often going to be, you know, having infections on the regular. And so going back and looking at the organisms they've grown can really clue you into what antibiotic coverage you need to choose. And then you go through your steps. So we've already talked about step one, risk of severity. Um, You determine if it's HAP or VAP. Step two, you look at your gram-positive risk. And step three, your gram-negative risk. Once we've assessed what organisms might be present and the risk for multidrug-resistant organisms, then you determine the need for therapy. And that's whether it's a single agent against pseudomonas and whether or not you need to cover for MRSA. I think that is when I think that when we have to think about assessing our potential therapeutic options based on efficacy and safety, that's where antibiograms can play a role. Yeah, I think you highlighted IV antibiotics being the kind of the universal big risk factor that they should be assessing. I think that's the one that's been correlated the most with you know, some of these resistant organisms and jumping in antibiograms are fundamental in the treatment of HAP and VAP. And a lot of infectious diseases 
um, at this point. They're frequently emphasized in the guidelines and um, with a lot of other ID states for that matter. So how does an antibiogram prove useful to us in this setting? How do we use it to assess our potential therapeutic options? Well, I think for starters, antibiograms are helpful in giving us data on what specific organisms have been susceptible to recently at our institution, and that's based on unit. Um, So at Huntsville Hospital, our antibiograms broken down into the emergency department and use that when patients are presenting from the community. Um, We also have an antibiogram for our general medicine floors and for our intensive care units. They're updated every year, um, and so you're probably asking, how do we use this information to assess potential options? We know what potential organism we would need to cover, so in this case, Staph aureus and Pseudomonas. Antibiograms can potentially tell us our percentage of MRSA isolates to determine if we need to cover MRSA in some instances. Perhaps more importantly, it can tell us how likely our gram-negative coverage is to be effective. With this, we would focus our attention primarily at the data for Pseudomonas, since an active agent against it will likely cover other enteric gram negatives we would be concerned about. And a good example um, from our antibiogram is whenever you think about pseudomonal coverage in antibiotics, a lot of patients, or not a lot of patients, a lot of providers will think, oh, well, let's just throw on a carbapenem. And at, at um, Huntsville Hospital, miripenem's really our workhorse carbapenem. It covers pseudomonas. And so they think because it has a more broad spectrum than some of the um, anti-pseudomonal beta-lactams, such as piperacillin, tazobactam, or cefepime, um, they think it's going to be better. But if you look at the antibiogram, meropenem, which also covers extended spectrum beta-lactamases, only has 83% coverage of pseudomonas compared to piptazo or zosin, which has 92% and is technically a little bit more narrow in spectrum. We want to make sure that the agents we are considering are going to be effective, and antibiograms can partially help us determine that. So when you're looking at it, the higher susceptibility in the antibiogram, the more likely the bugs we are targeting would be susceptible. So in that case, Zosin would be the better drug to choose. So I agree with you. You mentioned antibiograms can partially help us to determine if an antibiotic is going to be effective. And I want to touch on that a little bit more. You also mentioned you could potentially look at past organisms. The patient specifically has grown and that could clue you into what you might need to cover. So that would be a, you know, a good starting point as well. But it seems like we don't always just choose the agent with the highest susceptibility. I think the example you gave, we would because it's, you know, a narrower spectrum. But I think the point you're making is that there's a lot of other considerations that we have to make with antibiotic selection, not just if an agent has a high percentage susceptibility in the past. So we have to assess the other things such as safety, some of the collateral damage, allergy profile, maybe cost. So could you discuss some of those things for a little bit? Yeah. So the last thing regarding antibiograms, we do want an agent with high susceptibility, generally something that is going to be around 10% or less chance of resistance. 
Now, that could change depending on the patient's status or condition. Maybe a patient with HAP or VAP at high risk of mortality, so they're intubated, maybe they're in septic shock, we would prefer an agent with a little higher susceptibility profile because we don't want to get it wrong, which is why sometimes we'll have two, anti- two anti-pseudomonal agents um, on those patients. And remembering when we do use two anti-pseudomonal agents, we're using one from different classes so that we have two different mechanisms um, so that at least one of them will work. But if they are a patient with HAP that seems otherwise stable and they're on a general medicine floor, we're more comfortable with something that is around 90% susceptible if it comes with other benefits, such as less adverse effects. So thinking about other considerations, we also want to make sure the agent we are choosing has a favorable safety (coughs) profile, less risk of developing resistance, We also have to determine if the agent is going to get to the site of infection or be active at the site of infection. And a good example is daptomycin, uh, which is an MRSA agent. And it's one that we do not use for the treatment of pneumonia because it's inactivated by lung surfactant and therefore will not treat the infection. Some other general considerations of both MRSA and pseudomonal agents are so starting with MRSA, vancomycin, which is typically our drug of choice for MRSA, but a big thing to consider with it is that it can be nephrotoxic um, in a patient who's not stable and maybe they go into AKI. You really got to be following their renal function and making sure you're adjusting that regimen appropriately. You also often want to avoid using it in combination with Zosin because both of those antibiotics are nephrotoxic and will just have an additive risk. Another thing with vancomycin is that it's now called vancomycin infusion reaction. This was previously termed red man syndrome, but is now vancomycin infusion reaction, and that's caused by release of histamine from basophils and mast cells in response to the vancomycin, and that generally occurs when the drug's just given too quickly. The general rule is to give no quicker than 500 milligrams over 30 minutes. If a patient is complaining or experiencing vancomycin infusion reaction, they may have a red rash, hypotension, or may be tachycardic. Another MRSA drug that we see often for pneumonia is linazolid or Zyvox. It has good lung penetration and can be used PO if the patient is able to take meds PO. A side effect to be aware of is that of thrombocytopenia. That generally occurs with greater than two weeks of therapy. Um, And some patients are predisposed to it, such as dialysis patients. You also have to be aware of drug interactions, such as serotonin syndrome. So if a patient's on an SSRI, might not want to go this route. That's a risk versus benefit discussion you'll have with the provider. And lastly, a good thing about Zyvox is there's no renal adjustments. And so it's easy to remember the dose, and it's the same IV to PO. So 600 milligrams Q12. Going on into our gram-negative agents, we have piperacillin tazobactam or Zosin. 
At Huntsville Hospital, we actually give this as an extended infusion, and that's because, as we know, beta-lactams are time-dependent killers, which means the optimal efficacy for beta-lactam is achieved when the concentration of free drug exceeds the MIC for a specific portion of the dosing interval. Once a critical concentration is met, there's no further speed or extent of killing that's observed with the increased concentration. And so at that point, the time that the free drug concentration remains above the MIC becomes a better predictor of killing. And that's what we get by extending the infusion. One thing you may hear is the patient has a penicillin allergy, and so they want to avoid piperacillin tazobactam. In that case, it's really important to talk to, or if you can't talk to the patient, you know, if they're on the ventilator, talk to a caregiver, look in their past medical, um, not past medical history, but their past medications. So if you can do like a chart review or call their pharmacy to see if they've taken any kind of beta-lactam, that could help clue you in to whether or not it's a true allergy. Cefepime is also an agent you'll see. And a big thing that you may hear about with cefepime is neurotoxicity. The mechanism through which beta-lactams can cause neurotoxicity is thought to be related to the chemical structure of the beta-lactam ring and its effects on GABA neurotransmission. Beta-lactam antibiotics are able to bind directly to GABA-A receptor, which leads to a decrease in GABA release, an increase in excitatory neurotransmission, and a lowering of the seizure threshold. This typically occurs within four days into treatment with um, cefepime and is progressive. So a patient may at first be, uh, show signs and symptoms of altered mental status um, that could, in rare situations, progress to seizures. Our carbapenems, imipenem and meropenem, are other agents that may be considered. Um, Again, these are very broad in spectrum, and they also have a risk of neurotoxicity. There's also a major drug-drug interaction that you want to consider here, and that's with valproic acid. So if you already have a patient who has a history of seizures, you want to make sure you're, um, you know, doing a good thorough med rec review um, because if you give them, uh, it's more likely with imipenem, but also possible with meropenem. Um, if you give them one of those drugs, there can be inhibition of the enzyme that converts the VPA glucuronide to VPA, which would result in shorter half-life and subtherapeutic concentrations. Azetrionam is another agent, and oftentimes you see this in patients that have a true penicillin allergy. A Important thing to note here is that it doesn't have great pseudomonal coverage. So again, you want to be sure you're investigating those allergies. As far as side effects go, it can cause increased LFTs. Going into our non-beta-lactam antibiotics, we have our fluoroquinolones. So ciprofloxacin and levofloxacin. Remember, you want to choose one that covers pseudomonas. Um we could just talk all day about the considerations here. There's so many black box warnings and precautions, but some of the um, more notable ones are photosensitivity, QTC prolongation, and blood sugar abnormalities. 
there's also that black box warning for tendon rupture. Aminoglycosides is another class that covers pseudomonas, and we want to avoid these if possible because of the nephrotoxicity and ototoxicity um, involved with that class of medications. And lastly, polymyxins. So I hope y'all don't have to see this. And if you if you do see a polymyxin, I hope you're calling me <laughs> so that we can see if there's a newer, safer um, medication out there for your patient. But um, these are, are really nephrotoxic drugs, um, which unfortunately are sometimes the best, th- best therapy we have for resistant organisms. So es- essentially based on, you know, some of this discussion, you said vancomycin and linazolid are both reasonable options for MRSA coverage if needed and kind of have to assess those patient-specific risk factors. Maybe if they have CKD or other risk factors for nephrotoxicity, we would maybe avoid vancomycin. Or if they have certain predisposition to thrombocytopenia, think about that with uh, linazolid, maybe the drug interactions as well with SSRIs. And then with uh, tip, typically for pseudomonas coverage, beta-lactam should be considered first line for pseudomonas and other gram-negative rod coverage with some of those other non-beta-lactams potentially as alternatives. Yes, and I would say generally cefepime and piperacil and tazobactam are our go-to agents if able. So in that case, there's no allergies, susceptibility profiles on antibiogram are decent, um, but carbapenems are reasonable. If unable to use a beta-lactam or a second agent is needed, generally we would use an anti-pseudomonal fluoroquinolone, um, which would be ciprofloxacin or levofloxacin. Yeah, and I think we also have to consider, you know, the susceptibility of those fluoroquinolones themselves because generally they aren't the greatest, but they could be depending on what region um, of the country you're in. So what if uh, we don't need to cover MRSA? Does that change what we use from like the gram-negative rod coverage side of things? Generally, no. We would still want to cover for MSSA, and cefepime, piptazo, and meropenem or imipenem would work for that. If unable, levofloxacin would be reasonable as well. Well, thanks for sharing all that. So... Moving down on the pharmacist patient care process, we, you know, would have assessed the patient specific risk factors that would affect our plan. Think about the allergies, renal function, drug interactions that would affect our agent and dose. Um, But let's say we arrive at our plan. We've selected an evidence-based and cost-effective plan. What do we do next? Well, the next step is to implement it. Don't you know the PPCP, Taylor? What good is coming up with an assessment plan if you don't implement it? I completely agree, but I just wanted to make sure that you knew what the next step was. I'm glad I could pass your test. But yes, all jokes aside, this is a crucial step. I think this part ensures providers are in the loop and you are collaborating and communicating with them. Maybe you implement the plan by dosing vancomycin depending on where you work and write a note. But this is where it is important to practice those skills of communication and building relationships with providers you're working with as a team. Absolutely. And uh, we will get to practice doing this with the students, but could you provide any suggestions on best 
practices for communication with healthcare providers, how to work in a team. I know you're great at it. So I want to get your advice. Teamwork makes the dream work. So um, you've done all the hard work. You're about to call the physician. I honestly encourage you to practice when you first start calling you know, doctors, it can be kind of intimidating. It's like, what if they yell at me? You know what? You are providing them with a recommendation, trying to take the best care of the patient. And so be confident in that. And when you call and they call you back, introduce yourself, especially if they don't know who you are. Be specific, but concise, clear, and confident in your tone. And use an appropriate pace of communicating verbally. And make sure you close the loop of communication. So if you are making a recommendation and they say, yeah, let's do that. Make sure you repeat, okay, I'm going to order such and such or I'm going to discontinue such and such. Um, Just to make sure you're on the same page. And then lastly, document your intervention. Right. Because if you don't document, it didn't happen. That's right. right. All right. Those are all excellent suggestions. So uh, thank you for sharing those. Let's say now we've implemented our plan and obviously the last step of the PPCP is to follow up, monitor, and evaluate. What does this entail with HappenVap? I know you have some great suggestions with this. (laughs) So ultimately, you want to make sure your patient's improving. Is the antibiotic working? What are their signs and symptoms? Are they um, improving? Do we need to change or broaden our therapy if they're worsening? So are they persistently febrile? Are they requiring more oxygen? Are they unable to come off the vent? Things like that you want to consider. Are there um, any adverse drug reactions that are occurring? How about allergies? And at this point... I especially like to look to see if the patient has a documented penicillin allergy and maybe they are on cefepime for antipsychotic coverage because we didn't really think their allergy was true IgE mediated. At that point, I would always go back to their uh, chart and document patient tolerated cefepime during this hospitalization just so that we have that information in the future. You also want to be sure uh, you're reviewing the culture results. So if you had to start on two antihistamonal agents and the patient's improving, do you have that culture and susceptibility report back? Can you de-escalate therapy based on it? Are they doing better to the point where they can take PO antibiotics? If that's the case, maybe switching over their IV for some oral options. And how are their labs looking, especially their renal function? And at that point, it's important really to be monitoring that because a lot of these agents are renally adjusted. So if they were in AKI, but now it's improving, you really have to consider, does that dose need to be changed? We didn't mention this when we discussed assessment and plan in the PPCP, but I'm a huge fan of the MRSA nasal PCR pneumonia. It has a really great negative predictive value, anywhere from 95 to 100%. And what that means is that we can rule out MRSA pneumonia based on that PCR. The test is quick. The nurse does the nasal swab, sends it to the lab, and you can generally get the results back in less than a day. And if that, at that point, if it comes back negative, you can truly believe that the patient 
likely is not infected with MRSA, and you can uh, ask the team if they want to discontinue MRSA coverage. This might also come as part of the plan, but you would obviously want to ensure the patient is improving, but a seven-day of a seven-day course is recommended for all patients in HAPVAP, regardless of organism. And, you know, I'm a big fan of shorter is better for antibiotic durations. A seven-day course has been shown to be just as effective as a 10 to 15-day course. There's no difference in mortality, recurrent pneumonia, treatment failure, length of stay, or ventilation and it reduces antibiotic exposure. You always have to remember when using antibiotics that every day counts. Um, studies have found that there is a 4% risk of resistance developing per day of antibiotics, 3% risk of adverse events per 10 days on antibiotics, and a 9% risk of C. difficile infection per day. If we take this stepwise approach, I truly think pharmacists can make a meaningful impact in the management of patients with HAP and VAP. That's all great stuff. Um, I know you consistently are on Twitter harping about shorter is better. Um, So I really enjoy reading about that. But I think it's also for everybody to hear these things from a true expert. So do you have any last minute summaries, points of emphasis, pearls that you want to share that listeners could leave with? Um, I think we covered so much great content in here. And honestly, I'll be impressed if you guys listen through and can pick it all up um, on the first the first listen, because there's just so many pearls. I mean, from drug interactions to, you know, when do we choose double antipsudomonal coverage versus not? It's all good stuff. And I would say my my biggest suggestion is just following the literature. Guidelines aren't, you know, updated as quickly as we would like them to be, but literature is coming out every day showing like shorter durations are just as effective, how to implement tools like MRSA PCRs and things like that. So just whatever it is that works for you, whether it's an email group or Twitter, to stay up to date with new practices, that would be my my biggest recommendation. Well, Madeline, um, thank you so much for joining me today on our Auburn University Harrison School of Pharmacy's Practice Ready Curriculum podcast series and this episode in particular related to HAP and VAP. It was my pleasure. I'm so glad I could be here, and I hope that I can meet you guys someday if you're ever on rotation here at Huntsville Hospital. And lastly, my favorite thing to say is fight the bug, save the drugs.